three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jeez. some of these people. I just, Put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would uh, you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. I have got an exciting episode in store for all of you where my guest, performance coach Eric Degatti, and I dive into staying fit during Corona. We'll be tackling issues including how you can get toned and slim without a gym or fitness equipment in your apartment during the pandemic, what separates ordinary people from world-class professional athletes, and why so many athletes never make it to the big stage. And whether you're looking to add muscle or burn fat, Eric will talk you through how to build a sustainable and effective workout plan. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. Hey guys, I hope everyone is doing well uh, amidst this seemingly never-ending quarantine. Um, I think as I, as I record this in May, where I think it's the third calendar month of um, you know of this pandemic, and it's actually. Gosh, I mean, I can't even imagine in human history uh, just a situation like this where on a mass scale, the entire world is staying indoors for this long. I mean, it's it's unfathomable. And um, I think that, you know, the conversation I had last week with Michelle Dickinson, um, I think that was a very necessary conversation to have on ensuring that you're prioritizing your emotional wellness during these just incredibly challenging times. And as well as speaking openly about issues that you're having, if you're feeling, you know, sad or depressed or anxious, or if you don't have anything to look forward to, I find that that's really the root of, you know, when I'm feeling the most uh, depressed and despondent, it's because I don't have, you know, I'm not really working towards anything. I don't have, you know, a trip to look forward to in in the future or an outing or anything like that. And I can, you know, certainly understand if people are feeling like that, you know, there's no, you know, there's no lucid light at the end of the tunnel. It, it seems like this, this, you know, is going to go on for a very long time. So really appreciate all of you being a part of that conversation. And I wanted to now have a conversation about uh, physical fitness during the quarantine and during the pandemic, because I think that a lot of people are struggling to get exercise during um, coronavirus. And I think some of that is, you know, people don't have the motivation for the reasons that we touched on in the last episode. Some of it is people just don't have the physical means. You know, uh, gyms are closed. Um, In a lot of cities, you know, you can't work out outside. It's not necessarily um, even warm enough to to run or, or, you know, do aerobics outside. And most of us don't have heavy-duty fitness equipment in our apartments. We don't have a bench. We don't have you know dumbbells. And so I think a lot of people are wondering how they can replicate these workouts in their apartments. And that is part of what my conversation with performance coach Eric Degatti is going to explore. Um, and my guest today, Eric, has spent the last 20-plus years in the fitness industry as a coach, trainer, and instructor. So he must have started when I was... You know, when I was uh, in like first, <laughs> first, second grade, he was coaching and training um, some of these clients, which I mean, he's, you know, pretty impressive pedigree here. So he's 
Um, his clients include individuals who have been an Olympic gold medalist, All-Americans, national champions, World Series champions, I might have to ask him about that, and Pro Bowl athletes, and he serves as a training consultant to the New York Islanders, Detroit Lions, Washington Redskins, Miami Dolphins, and New York football Giants. He also works personally with many NFL and MLB players. So listen very carefully to what this guy's talking about. I mean, you know, I obviously have talked about fitness and performance on the pod before. Episode 3, I talked about cardio and high-intensity interval training. Episode 16, I talked about building a workout uh, regimen. But I am not, you know, I, I don't train Olympic gold medalists. I mean, I'm just, I'm just a, uh, as Eric, I think would, would say a weekend warrior. Um, so I am really excited to hear, um, to have this conversation with Eric Degatti and to talk about what we can do during COVID-19 to stay physically healthy. So without further ado, my conversation with Eric. Eric, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you here. I, you know, I've covered fitness and performance on the pod in the past, but I think having a performance coach and fitness expert like yourself here really enriches the conversation we're going to be having, particularly given what's going on in the world right now. Cool. Yeah, I actually enjoy uh, having conversations outside of the fitness industry uh, just as much as I do within it, because a lot of the same principles apply. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I think and we'll talk about really, you know, how how things like motivation and organization, you know, come into play and how it to your point, it, it expands beyond just physical fitness. But I do sort of want to acknowledge what's on everyone's minds right now out of the gate with you, Eric, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, most people across the world have been staying home for months and have no access to their usual gyms or workout locations. I'm sure you're working with tons of clients right now who don't have fitness equipment in their homes. And I want to ask, you know, generally speaking, how can people stay fit while staying indoors during this quarantine? Um, for me, I actually, I, I, you know, certainly this is a, a terrible situation that we're in, but at the same time, from, from the fitness standpoint, what I actually uh, am taking as a positive out of this is this is getting people to open their eyes that, Fitness goes well beyond, you know, walking mindlessly into a, a big box gym, pushing uh, buttons on a, a machine with with blinking lights and mindlessly doing kind of, you know, uh, a lot of activity and going nowhere and getting a whole lot uh, done without really accomplishing anything and just kind of making them think a little bit more about how movement can be incorporated into their everyday lives and, and not looking at it as, OK, I'm going to do 30 minutes on this machine and then I'm going to go do uh, three sets of 10 on all the machines and then kind of go home and, and hope for the best. Um, and so hopefully it gets people to get a better picture of where movement fits in their lives and where it can fit in their lives. Uh, and, and there has been some positives out of it. Uh, I mean, I've seen more people walking in my neighborhood than I've ever seen in my life. And, and mm. if, if, if just a percentage of those people keep that habit up, uh, there's been some benefit from, from all this. So I like that. So, so you're really, um, you're really talk talking about a more broad understanding of what it means to be fit, as opposed to maybe prior to this, it was a narrow conception of, you know, being fit means going to the gym and lifting for an hour. Now you're saying just getting up, getting outside, you know, walking maybe up and down the stairs in your apartment building, that could be a part of staying fit. We got to a point, Ricky, where, where, you know, people would go to the gym and I would literally see people push a button and stand by an elevator 
outfit and wait for the elevator to go upstairs to go on a stairmaster that goes nowhere. Like that's missing the point, you know, driving around for 20 minutes looking for the closest spot to go get on a treadmill and walk and go nowhere. Um, like the the psychology of it became very very twisted, um, and that it's almost like the calories don't count unless that machine tells you they did. Um, and and you know I always tell the story because uh, I go out and I teach. Uh, around the world for for exercise professionals and sports medicine uh, professionals. And, and I explained to him, you know, if I had a time machine uh, and we could go back, you know, a thousand years and you had to explain to somebody as a personal trainer or fitness professional what you did for a living, they'd think you were crazy. They'd say, you know, you have to explain to somebody, well, people pay me to get them to move. And they'd say, well, that's that's insane. <laughs> you know, you know, hey, what do you mean people don't move? How do they survive? Well, they get paid to sit all day. Well, what do you mean they get paid to sit all day? And well, what do you do when they're there? Well, we have them pick stuff up and okay, well, what do you have them do with it? Well, they put it back down and they pick it up again. And and it it, it when you take a step back and take that 10,000 foot view, it, it's a little bit ridiculous where we've gotten with fitness. And so now you get people out and now they're doing yard work and they're going for walks and they're doing things like that's real authentic movement. Um, and, and I, and I think we can take more out of that from a holistic standpoint than we can, you know, uh, doing some of the, the, uh, creature of, of poor habits that, that I referred to earlier in terms of what modern fitness had become. Eric, man, I, I love what you're saying because I, it ties into a lot of the themes of the pod about like psychology and neuroscience, because what you're saying is if people sit on a machine and the machine says, you've you know done this for 20 minutes, you've burned 400 calories, the person internalizes, wow, I've had a worthwhile workout. But, you know, when they go to the gym, maybe they'll hit a button in the elevator. They'll, you know, uh, they won't go down the stairs or, or you know, um, or walk to the gym. Maybe they'll they'll ride, whereas that's just as many calories just because of that sort of psychological component. So I think it's very true where people sort of need that validation from technology. Um, and it's it's counterintuitive. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is you could turn that machine on and then get a lawn chair and sit next to it and eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's, and it'll still tell you you burn the same amount of calories. It doesn't know how many calories you burn. And the, even if even if you were doing the workout on the machine, those calorie numbers aren't accurate. That's a guesstimate at best. Um, and realize, you know, your your metabolism is affected by so many things including your your autonomic nervous system. So you could have slammed on your brakes to avoid a squirrel on the way to the gym, pumped out a bunch of cortisol, and now how many calories you burn on that treadmill is going to completely change. Yeah, no, it's really important to take that holistic perspective. Um, and and, and I, I, you know, I'm certainly happy to dive into that with you a little later, but I do want to talk specifically for a moment about you know what people could be doing uh, in their apartment to stay fit. Because I know for me, you know, I don't have a gym in my apartment. All I have is a single 20 pound kettlebell, a yoga mat and a resistance band. Somehow I managed to sort of duplicate my full body workouts with those things. But a lot of people don't have any of those, you know, those things, Eric, they don't have a resistance band or a kettlebell. So are there ordinary things that people can use to replicate these workouts in their homes? Yeah, the first thing is manage your own body. Um, you know, the the company that I that I one of the companies that I teach for and that I've been working with for for the past 14 years is a company called Functional Movement Systems, and we have a uh, movement uh, evaluation tool called the Functional Movement Screen, where we kind of qualitatively and quantitatively look at how well someone moves. And so our tagline is "Move well, then move often." 
so many people get caught up into the move often piece of how many burpees can I do and uh, how many calories that I burn that the, what about moving well first? Um, and in most movement practices up until modern times, if you didn't move well, they wouldn't allow you to move often. So if you look at things like yoga or martial arts uh, in the history of, of movement, that if you didn't move well enough, you had to stop and take pause until you got good enough at that movement to move on to the next level. And uh, we can supersede a lot of that by doing a whole bunch of reps of with lousy form of uh, some, some exercises, or we can supersede that by using machines that allow us to uh, do things that we couldn't normally do because our bodies don't move well. And our bodies don't move well because we sit in desks and chairs all day. So where do we start? We start with getting your body to move well, especially since most of the people that uh, are sitting in desks and chairs all day now get it's compounded because now your desk and chair is not a, a cushy office. It's now a it's now a dining room table. It's a it's a um, it's a makeshift office area where you're sitting and and people because they don't have the regular schedule of what they used to have of getting a coffee break and a lunch break and those sorts of things. Everybody I talked to is actually spending more time in front of a computer now than they ever were. So that gives you even more reason that we need to start moving better. And that could be some just some basic uh, mobility drills. Um, and that needs nothing more than your body weight. And if we want to look at where we can start looking for for some of the, the uh, suggestions where to go with mobility, well, you know, the, one of the longest standing exercise practices around is yoga. And it doesn't last for 2000 years for, for no good reason. Right. You know, you, you know, you talk about doing these exercises with nothing but your your full body weight. And I don't know if I, so I, I've never been in prison. I don't want to speculate whether you have or haven't, but it reminds me of the workouts that you see in the movies where someone's kind of stuck in a cell or, you know, if you ever saw the dark night, he's stuck underground and they have, n you know, no tools, but their own body and they're doing push-ups and pull-ups and trying to, you know, will themselves into, into, into shape. So it sounds like that sort of mentality is what you need to stay fit if you don't have anything else around you. Absolutely. I've always been drawn to the, the minimalist approach and, uh, one of the one of the most brilliant minds in the exercise science field is a is a guy by the name of uh, Pavel Satsulin, uh, who started a company called Strong First. He's he's kind of considered the godfather of the kettlebell, um, and and Pavel, uh, his one of his his things that he did along his journey was he was in charge of of training Soviet soldiers, and he knew that when he had had to go out in the field. They didn't have squat racks or kettlebells or or any of these things. So to get them physically prepared, um, he would have them do a very minimalist approach. And, and he wrote a book called The Naked Warrior, and, around, and it revolves around two movements. It's a single leg pistol squat and a single arm push up. And he goes through a whole progression and systematic um, steps to get you to be able to do those two things. Because if you can find somebody that can do those two things, they they probably don't have any sort of musculoskeletal limitations. They move really well, and they're and they're pretty strong and fit. Uh, so that's a pretty good standard if you can get to that. And he's written several books since with that same approach of using a single kettlebell and two exercises, and um, and being able to get a whole lot done. Um, so you know you certainly don't need a gym full of of machines. And if if you even want to dive into where the history of those machines come from, it's an interesting. Uh, backdrop and that the 
the uh, history of actually even isolating muscles in doing having a, a doing a bicep curl comes from two things. It comes from when people had polio, they found that if you could if you could uh, innervate any muscle, um, you would get some carryover and and, and it had uh, benefits. So those people couldn't do much other than some single joint movements. So they started creating single joint exercises to to work with that. Then on the flips on the opposite side, you had bodybuilding. Um, that started to become big in the late 60s and early 70s and then took a huge boom when Arnold came in. And bodybuilding is basically where you stand on stage in your underwear. And if you're not gifted uh, with the right genetics where your biceps are um, aesthetically matched to your triceps, well, you need to isolate your biceps to get them unnaturally up uh, to match your triceps. Now, um, the percentage of bodybuilders in the world is, is uh, extremely uh, low. Uh, but unfortunately, everybody tried to, to train like them. Um, so when you started to isolate body parts, they said, okay, well, if we can make a machine that isolates the bicep and then isolates the quad and isolates that, well, I can sell that machine for, you know, two, three thousand dollars and I could sell a whole gym's worth for, for a couple hundred thousand dollars worth. Um, and so equipment manufacturers jumped all over that. And that's how you, you created the, the Nautilus machines and everything that came after that. And then for the gym owner, the gym owner realized, well, if I can put these machines in there, well, I don't need to give them much coaching or supervision. Mm -hmm. They just go and look at the picture on the machine and, and go. And so gyms, instead of becoming, um, what they originally were of, in terms of a, a, a physical development you know, uh, center, they became equipment rental facilities. And basically that's what your gym membership is. It's, it's an equipment rental. Um, it doesn't come with really much guidance or coaching. And, and the gym model is we hope you don't show up. Uh, I've worked at gyms where we had three, 4,000 members. And if, you know, 20% of them showed up on a single day, we'd have to shut the doors because we couldn't hold all those people. We, We bet that you don't show up. And that's how, uh, you know, gyms like Planet Fitness are able to, to charge, you know, $10 a month because how many of those people will just, you know, uh, buy, buy those gym memberships on January 1st and show up twice and then for, forget that they even have them active. So I think there's definitely something to be said there. And you also mentioned the uh, Soviet model of uh, just having the, the uh, single pistol squat and then the one arm push up. It reminds me of, I listened to this other podcast, The Art of Manliness, and they talked about how this one fitness enthusiast, I think his name was uh, Earl Lederman, he actually had this theory that every man, in order to save his own life, doesn't need to be able to bench press or have six-pack abs, but he just needs to swim half a mile, run 200 yards at top speed, jump over obstacles higher than his waist, um, do, I think it was 15 to 20 pull-ups, and then do like 10 to 15 dips. So is there anything, um, you know, anything, any merit in that, that, you know, and not just men, women, that those are really the five components to, you know, I guess self-preservation if we were in prehistoric times? Yeah, that's where you're basically, when I look at a, uh, a program and whether it's a, a team brings me in to evaluate their, their team training program or an individual comes to me and says, hey, what do you think of what I'm doing here? What do I need to change? I have a checklist of things that I go through. And the first thing is to say, okay, well, everything we do movement wise, whether you're on a field, whether you're in a weight room, whether you're cleaning out your garage can be broken into um, six or seven primary patterns that we do as humans, uh, that all movement is derivative of. So we need to be able to push, we be able to pull, we need to be able to rotate, we need to be able to um, 
uh, squat and, and lunge and step and, and, and uh, walk, jog and run. Uh, and all these things are, are fundamental patterns. And I need to make sure we're covering all those first because those are patterns that we uh, actually have innately. Um, you know, when you're a child, you don't need a movement coach to come in as a toddler and teach you how to, how to crawl and how to get up from, from the floor and, and begin to walk. It's a, it's a, um, self-correcting and self-coaching process. That's, that's kind of this magical neurological development sequence. And we actually have landmarks that you should be hitting. Um, in the first 21 months of your life, the, the World Health Organization has landmarks that you should be hitting. And that's anybody who has a, a child knows that you, at certain marks, you should be able to lift your head and you should be able to hold yourself up and you should be able to sit up. So we have all these landmarks to make sure you have movement health throughout the first two years of your life. And then the rest of your life, we have basically nothing. It's, yeah. it, we spend the first two years developing this elegant movement, and then we spend the next 40, 50, 60, 70 screwing it up, basically. For sure. For sure. And and Eric, you've probably seen the growth in virtual personal training as a result of the quarantine. People are having sessions with their, instructor, their instructors on laptops and iPads. Um, some of my friends do Zumba or, as you mentioned, yoga, completely online. And it sort of begs the question of how this might change the landscape of fitness going forward. Do you imagine that when the restrictions ultimately get lifted, people will return to the gym? Or is this online training the new normal? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to tell. I, I mean, unfortunately, I hate to say it, I've, I've spoken with colleagues and, and, you know, there there could be well over a quarter, if not 40% of my entire industry. And, and I'm going to include the sports training industry, because most of my work is with athletes, um, is going to get wiped out by this. It's just because a lot of uh, the personal training studios and as a former uh, owner of a personal training center, you work on such thin margins. Um, it's not a Planet Fitness or, a, 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 you know, um, type model where you're, you're, you know, banking on people not showing up. If people don't show up, you don't make money. And so, unfortunately, a lot of these kickboxing and Pilates and yoga studios are going to really be hurt by this. Um, as far as the online training model, um, you know, I think that there's definitely a future. I mean, I, it certainly prompted me to get involved in the online training world. It was something that was on my to-do list, just always down towards the bottom. And now it's shot up towards the top. Um, what it, it will do though, is I think it's going to, uh, when it's all said and done after there's this washout, uh, I think what you're going to see is a better quality of not only uh, what people are considering fitness, like we've already talked about, but what the fitness industry provides. Uh, I think it's going to be a higher quality because, uh, you know, I, I put up a post a couple of weeks ago when this thing started. I said, you know, um, if your whole idea of online <coughs> training is doing burpees in your pajamas in your living room, it's only a matter of time before your clients figure out, yeah, I don't really need you. You know, I could do that. Um, I think part of, um, you know, there's, there's a part of it where there's the professional instruction in that I need direction. Um, and that's, that's one element. And then the other element that I think you touched on is the element of community. Um, there's a reason why places uh, like CrossFit have become so big because they have done such a tremendous job of developing community and support systems. Um, and that's also why you see the, the huge boon in something like uh, Peloton, because you have that 
that element where you're part of a community and um, that has been shown to create much higher compliance with fitness. Um, and so um, if, it, if they can add an element of that, of accountability and community, as well as add, the, add quality coaching and direction, I think that there's going to be a very uh, big uptick in terms of the quality of what is available six months to a year from now. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I think that's that's very insightful. And you know, instead of forecasting uh, forward, I want I want to talk for a moment about you know the evolution that's already taken place because you've been coaching people in the fitness industry for the last 20 years, and I'd imagine that you know over that span, the climate of fitness, then the social, you know, the impact of social media has essentially created a culture where people are so consumed with the way they look. And the result is they're, you know, more fitness conscious now than maybe 10 years ago. And, and do you think that if you look at the landscape um, in your time as a performance coach, that it's sort of evolved in that way? You have kind of, you have, there's, there's two ends of that, of that uh, continuum there on the, with the younger population, social media has uh, created this look at me beauty contest, and it's developed a, an entire industry of people that never existed before called a fitness influencer. And the interesting and, and sad part of, of fitness influencers are is that most of them are just genetically gifted. They just pick the right parents. Um, huh. And and the other and the other part of that is most of them are giving coaching advice, yet they've never actually coached another human being. They've never actually stood in front of someone and had to train them. They're basically saying, I look pretty, do the workout that I did, when the reality is they could have done anything and look like that. It has nothing to do with yeah. the quality or content of their workout. So that's the one conundrum we have at the, at the other end. The other, the at the opposite side of that that continuum is we have a baby boomer population um, that is um, the first of its kind in that you know if you you know even if you look at pictures of um, my grandparents' generation when they were in their 50s and 60s they were they were pretty much resolved to, to the rocking chair and and slowing down and and um, you know realizing that that. Uh, that there are better days had gone by where now that's, that's nonsense. Uh, you know, mm. I have clients, you know, that are work with, with the client this morning, who's an avid triathlete and he's in his early sixties and he's not, has no intention of slowing down. He's running the same times now in, in his early sixties that he did, you know, 20 years ago. And he's, and he actually has less aches and pains. Yeah. I mean, uh, speaking to that point, my uncle Larry is, is in his, I think he's got to be 75. He can bench more than I can. This guy, this guy puts up, you know, two, at least two plates um, on each side. It's, it's, I, I, I think you really nailed it. The baby boomer generation just will not, you know, recede into that rocking chair <laughs> as you alluded to. Well, good for him and God um, bless uh, uncle Larry. Hopefully we'll have more of those because, you know, we have, as all that's going on, Unfortunately, you can't lose sight of the fact that that we have a epidemic of lifestyle diseases. And I mean, even look at what's going on now with um, with this whole pandemic is that the people who are affected by it are people who uh, are most of the risk factors are um, lifestyle related um, uh, casualties, meaning that it's it's diabetes, it's it's obesity, it's heart disease. It's a lot of these things that are diseases of lifestyle. 
that are putting people at risk. And I would hope that people would open their eyes to that uh, and, and realize that that we are a much weaker, less resilient species uh, right. as a whole than we were 20 years ago, let alone 50 to 100 years ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I talk about it all the time. If, if you've ever seen the movie WALL-E, how all the, uh, all the adults in that film end up so um, essentially re- reliant on technology that they're just in wheelchairs 24-7 consuming, you know, media, pretty much, you know, like morbidly obese. Uh, but I do want to touch on, um, Eric, you mentioned the, the fitness influencers and how they're just genetically gifted and they would look like that no matter what. And what's always fascinated me in this whole, you know, diet versus workout debate is it's almost like a nature versus nurture, which one matters more. Um, and because growing up and I'm sure you had this experience, I used to be able to eat whatever I wanted. And as long as I played, you know, basketball with my friends after school, I was still relatively fit. But as I've sort of advanced through my twenties and nowadays I'll eat a whole Domino's pizza. And no matter how much time I spend at the gym over the weekend, you know, you'll still be able to see or feel that pizza the next day. Um, so, you know, is there a ratio, like say someone is trying to get in the best shape of their life. Is there a ratio on what percentage of their results will depend on what they eat? Um, and what will depend on the gym? What, you know, what do you think if you could put that in like numerical terms? Okay. So, um, the first thing I would say is anybody that's going to give you a hard and fast number or rule, um, I would automatically question everything they're going to say after that, because, the first thing I need to ask is is two questions: Who are you? Um, what's you know meaning? What is what is Ricky's training background? What is uh, Ricky's uh, medical history? What is uh, his his um, injury history? All these different things that go into what what you showed up with today. And then I need to know that the big question is: What is your goal? Because um, you know the the nutrition advice that I may give, uh, and I have a text from uh, one of the offensive linemen that I work with, who's probably, he's probably in the range of 300 pounds. That's going to be really different than the uh, girls tennis uh, athlete that I'm going to work with later this afternoon. So you have to kind of put it in a framework of what is it, you know, who is it that you're working with and what is it they're looking to achieve. Now, in terms of um, percentages. The one percentage I will use is the is I tell everybody, you know, the 80-20 rule. And what I mean by that is if you can follow all the steps um, that you need to 80% of the time, the other 20% of the time you can have a Domino's or you can sleep in and skip your workout. And so if you follow that 80-20 rule, you'll usually get to your goal in no you know, a uh, rapid amount of time. And as long as you're not looking to be, the, um, you know, a, a, on the cover of a magazine, yeah. um, if, if you do need to get there in a shorter amount of time, um, or if you do need to take it beyond, um, what, you know, a, a normal aesthetically pleasing physique would look like, well, then your percentage changes. And then it goes down to where I can't, uh, have a 20% margin of error. I may only need to have 10, five or zero. Um, you know, I, way back a million years ago when I competed in bodybuilding, you know, I, uh, start, I remember I specifically competed on in late April and I started my diet the day after Thanksgiving. And I had two cheat meals between Thanksgiving and the end of April, wow. two cheat meals. And I got down under 5%, uh, body fat. And I have to tell you, I've never felt worse or been more miserable in my life. Um, so the, the trade-off is, um, 
is that really worth it? You know, I, yeah. I looked awesome for a, the total of about eight hours. And then as I went back to, to somewhat normal living, um, it kind of went, it, it normalized pretty quickly. So it's a trade-off. Do I, re, is it really worth it? There gets to be a point where it's like, yes, I could be leaner, but is it worth the sacrifice? I mean, I had to go to family parties with a cooler bag with plain grilled chicken. And, uh, um, and I mean, that's a miserable life. And yeah. is it really worth it? And I can tell you, you know what? It, 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 it's, it, it, it's not going to change your life that much. People will say, Ooh, you look great for about 10 seconds. And then you know what? They'll go on Instagram and find somebody that looks better. That is so well said, um, Eric. And I bet you remember those cheat meals pretty well. What, what, what were those two cheat meals between Thanksgiving and April? I'm just, I'm curious. Uh, well, I know one of them, um, is, uh, with the last name, Degati, you look forward to pizza gain on Easter, uh, <laughs> Easter pie year round. That's my favorite meal. I know one of them was that. And I think there was something New Year's Eve probably revolved around pizza and ice cream. You, that is that is incredible. You you probably gorged out. I mean, that's I can't even imagine. Um, so I think, but I think what you just said right there is is very is very well said about how pe- when you look, you know, when you look in when you're in you know pristine physical fitness, people will say, "Wow, you know, you look great for 10 seconds," and then find someone who looks better. So it's really about fe- how you feel um, internally and subjectively. And not, you know, putting too much uh, weight on others' opinions because at the end of the day, you know, you have to live in your body. It, you know, it, it's not it's not as if you're um, living, you know, w- with other people. So you have to make sure that you're comfortable in your own skin and weigh whether or not those sacrifices are worth it, whether or not having to carry around the grilled chicken cooler, you know. And I, I have friends like that where go out to eat and they, they can't eat anything you know they bring their own food they have very strict diets and some of them are athletes some of them are weekend warriors as you would say some of them are just trying to lose significant amount of weight uh but it's a question of whether or not that uh that that sacrifice is worth it yeah i mean if if you're talking about when i work with professional athletes and you're talking about your livelihood then yeah you know what i i can i can have that that piece of cake or that that slice of pizza when i retire um the the irony is, is that the reason that they get to become professional athletes is uh, when people ask me all the time, it's like, what is it, what is it, you know, about these athletes? And I said, well, first of all, understand they're freaks. There's a reason why 80,000 people will take their entire Sunday to go sit in a cold stadium and watch them because they are freaks. They are absolute special specimens. Mm. Um, And so like I um, do, I I do a, 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 psychological kind of exercise with the high school athletes that I work with. And I say, okay, so I want you to do a little visualization for me. I said, if you could have any athlete's body in the world, who would it be? And, you know, they'll, the, uh, they'll say, I want to look like LeBron James, or I want to look like Odell Beckham, or I want to look like, you know, Bryce Harper, depending on whatever sport they're in. And I'll say, okay, well, let's, let's take it a step further. Imagine I just got done training them and they're there kind of stretching and cooling off and they have a tank top and shorts on and you're looking at them and, and you say, wow, man, I wish I could look like that. I said, <laughs> would the, I said, would the next words out of your mouth be, I bet you they eat a lot of fruity pebbles and they probably had a Taylor ham, egg and cheese this morning. Um, probably not. All right. So if you think you're going to look like that, but yet eat the other way, it's not going to happen. Right. And 
uh, if it was going to happen, we would know that already because you we would you would be a freak, right? Um, here's the reality: is that the 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 sad part is, is that some of those guys can eat like that and still look like that. Um, I had one guy whose name will, will remain unnamed, but he was you know he's um, a world champion in his sport. And when I would go to work with him in his house, he had two food groups, Ricky. He had tequila and he had barbecue potato chips. I love that. This was a guy who had veins in his calves and abs and looked like an Adonis. Um, But he was a freak. He was a 24-year-old freak of nature. And that's why he gets paid millions of dollars to do what he does. Um, Yeah. And and, and people have to understand that. Yeah, Eric, I mean— uh, you, you, you kind of have been speaking about a little bit, but, uh, you obviously have, you know, an impressive pedigree, which I shared with my listeners before we began having worked with extraordinary athletes in the NHL, NFL, and MLB. Um, I'm just curious, you know, I think a lot of kids when they, when they grow up every, you know, everyone wants to, you know, try to be a baseball player, football player, basketball player. What was, what was your favorite sport to watch or, or what athlete, uh, did you want to be a professional baseball, basketball, football player when you were 10 years old? Uh, I baseballs. I mean, I love football and I, and I, and I grew up playing football and I, you know, uh, but baseballs is my first true love. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to play for the Yankees, but, uh, the, the scouting report on me was, Hey, he's short, but he's slow. Uh, uh, unfortunately never got there but um those who can't do teach so i've gotten now the chance to to work with uh athletes at at that level uh fortunately hey man i'm right there with you i'm a diehard uh mets fan actually i'm a baseball fan but i'm a mets fan and i think you know to your point and i want to talk to you about like you know what what really separates uh athletes like the ones you train from ordinary people and you, you mentioned genetics for one do you think that other factors like work ethic or money or social class, you know, is that what separates the Mike Trouts or the Jacob DeGroms or the JJ Watts or OBJs from, you know, the ordinary person? Or do you really think it comes down to solely a question of, of heredity? Uh, it's, it's absolutely not solely that. Cause there's plenty of, um, there's plenty of examples, um, that, that fly in the face of that. Uh, where where you have people that that were not gifted genetically but ended up uh, reaching the highest levels. I mean, the greatest quarterback ever to play is Tom Brady. Now it certainly helps to be six four, but he was certainly not uh, a, um, a premier athlete from from the womb. This is a kid who he he uh, he played on his freshman team. He didn't even start, and the team only won one game. So as bad as the team was, they never said, "Well, we're you know." let's put Brady in where it's, it never got that low. And he went from that to being the greatest quarterback in history. Um, mm. So uh, it's certainly not that. So there's, there's a couple different factors. I, you know, one of them is I, I think the reason why you see so many athletes coming from challenged situations, whether it's uh, baseball players coming from Latin America uh, and impoverished areas, whether it's NFL or NBA players coming from the inner city, and it, it goes across um, not just, um, I think, not just sports, but I think in a lot of different things. You see the same thing in music. When they don't have another option, um, it, may, it definitely changes things. For the, for the kid who's upper middle class from suburbia and you don't get that scholarship, you know what? Dad can still pay for me to go to college. Or if I don't get in the NFL, oh, well, I'll get a job, you know, and do okay for myself anyway. 
Um, when this is the difference between, you know, transcending and changing the lives of you and the people around you, that's one of the, that's uh, certainly a huge factor and why you see so much of, uh, of the population in, in professional sports coming from, you know, challenged backgrounds is because it is number one, there's no, there's no backup plan. This is it. I am all in for this. Um, two is that you see, and if, if you read some, some books like the talent code, or if you read, um, the sports gene or outliers that what you find is that, um, is that there's a, there's something, um, where there's a very deliberate way in which the best in the world practice and approach their game. Um, they don't just go and take a hundred swings. They're going to, they may do, uh, two swings, but they're going to make sure they're perfect. Um, cause it, the expression goes, you know, perfect, uh, practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice does. Mm. Um, and a hundred swings of a lousy swing is just getting you really good at a lousy swing. Sure. And, and, you know, you're mentioning a, a lot of, a lot of valuable literature on, uh, on what separates athletes and, and non-athletes and, you know, the importance of resilience. It, it almost calls to mind, uh, the book, the, the subtle art of, uh, of not giving a fuck by Mark Manson. And he talks about, um, you know, how essentially it's not about what you want to be when you grow up and what, um, pleasures you want and what, you know, goals you're seeking. It's about what pain you want in your life and what you're willing to struggle for. And to your point, you know, what separates, um, people who, who achieve greatness and people who don't is how much, you know, how much pain, um, how much, uh, they're willing to suffer, how much they're willing to sacrifice, how many mornings they're willing to wake up at 4 a.m. Um, and, you know, forego the, the partying and um, the leisure and, you know, all the other things that their peers are doing. Uh, so I would think that factors into it. And just to throw some some numbers at you here, Eric, uh, and I want to I want to stay with baseball for a sec. In baseball, about one in 200 high school seniors who play baseball are eventually drafted by an MLB team. Um, and only one in 33 minor leaguers ever gets a moment on the big stage. Uh, according to baseball reference, as of last season in 2019, a total of 310,000 players had ever been recorded in the minor leagues. Um, at the same point in time, 19,000 players had made it to the show. So that works out to a 6% success rate. Uh, is that lower or higher than, than you would expect? Yeah, I think it's a, uh, the numbers I've heard is roughly around 5%. Because if you think about you have AAA, AA, single A, rookie ball, um, uh, it, any uh, teams that they may have in Latin America, um, and you you factor out you have 20-something on each roster. Um, and then you think about the roster, think about the roster of your Mets and how much of that really changes over every single year. It's maybe five or 10 players interchange out and how many of them actually stick. Um, so the, uh, a lot of those guys in minor leagues are just to fill rosters just cause they need nine guys on the field to be a surrounding development system for the few, you know, the, the five out of the hundred that are going to make it up. Um, and so no, that the, the, the odds are quite long in, in baseball and, you know, the rewards are great if you can ever get there. You know, oh, yeah. you go from basically living below the poverty line as a minor league player to to making a, a, a league minimum of over a half a million dollars. But you have a, you know, uh, nine more than nine out of 10 don't ever get there. Or your boy, uh, Garrett Cole, who you just signed. How much did he get? Three hundred twenty five million. 
Yeah. And that's why, you know, when anybody says, uh, you know, these guys make too much money, um, you know, they don't realize the odds that these guys are up against to get there. And, and, you know, I would turn to anybody that says that and say, well, hey, listen, you go out there in game seven and, and strike out the side and we'll give you the same amount. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, for sure. And and it's interesting when, when you look at a draft, Eric, and this is the last the last thing I'm going to say about baseball, because I could honestly talk about this all day. But when you look at a major league baseball draft three, four, five years later, and you see which guys ended up making it to the big leagues and which guys sort of flamed out and never amounted to anything. More often than not, what's astonishing is that if you go number by number in the first round, you're going to see seven, eight guys who are drafted out of the top 10 whose names you don't recognize, who played a handful of seasons in the minor leagues and then hung up their cleats. So, you know, I mean, what's happening here? If you go onto Wikipedia from 2015, 16, 17, any of those drafts, you're not going to recognize those names. Why, Why are those guys who are drafted in the first round who have highly touted potential that teams scout and, and develop for years, why don't they ever make it to the major leagues? Um, well, there's, 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 you know, one of the factors, there's multiple factors in it, but one of the factors is there comes a point, depending on whether they went to college or not, um, that age plays in a factor that it's a young man's game. When you can draft kids in, in, in Latin America at 16, um, and you had a kid who graduates college at 22, the clock's ticking a lot faster for that, that college graduate. I had a, a kid that I trained who was told by a, a major league GM, he said, I think you have the talent to play in the major leagues, but if I go back and tell my staff that I just signed a 24-year-old, I'll lose my job. Because if you think about wow. the time it takes, even the best, the, the phenoms that that you know work their way up, the Bryce Harpers of the world, who, you know, dropped out of high school at 16 so he can get his GED, so he can go get a year of community college so he can get drafted at 17. He didn't immediately go to the major leagues. Um, and he's a he's a one in a million. So the the uh, learning curve of working your way up in baseball is going to be at least two, three years. So if you're not graduating until you're 22 and now you're 24, 25, and you're realizing that these other 16, 17 year olds are flying past you. There comes a point where you start thinking, you know what, I got a college degree. I can't start my life at 27, 28 years old. Mm-hmm. Right. It's hard enough with college debt and everything that, that goes into it um, that, that I'm going to now start five years behind everybody else um, with nothing and a bunch of college debt. Uh, I, you know what? I had my I had my fun here. I'm not going to the show. I, I need to start. I need to start my life. So that that is certainly one factor. And I can tell you, I've I talked with multiple guys that have trained that said, look, this is it. This is my year. If I don't go up this year, I'm done. I, I have to start my life at some point. I can't I can't be making less than minimum wage with a college degree and a bunch of college debt. Um, because the other, you know, misconception is that these superstars get uh, you know, full ride scholarships, and that's certainly not the case either. There's uh, for a roster of 33 players at the Division One level, you may have 11 scholarships to divide up amongst them, and usually those are going to the the six four pitchers who are throwing 90 mile an hour plus, and even that they're getting partial scholarships. So um, that's that's certainly a factor is that the clock is ticking, and kind of like like I said before, if they have a fallback, that's what they're going to go to. If you're a kid that that you know what I'm going to live on a, a, a dirt floor. In, in Panama, Dominican Republic, or Puerto Rico, you know what? 
whatever I make, as little as I'm making in the in minor leagues, it's still better than where I was from. I'm going to stick it out. Absolutely. And it's hard when you have guys like, like Ronald Acuna Jr. Who's, I, I mean, he must've been like 16 or 17 when, when he signed, if not younger. Um, and GMs are, you know, with the international draft GMs have guys like him in their pocket, like you said, to sell someone in their, in their mid twenties. But you know, if you, it's just, if you look at I me, mean, some of these names, Mark Appel, Brady Aiken, Mickey Moniak, these, these were number one draft picks in the last six, seven years, Eric. And these are guys who no one has ever heard of because to your point, it sounds like they just realized, you know, they needed to get on with their lives. So it shows it, you know, I think it shows the uh, element of chance and, and the lack of um, foreseeability with these things with injuries. I know you, you know, have, have studied quite a bit as well as, you know, with, I'm sure some of these guys have battled mental illness, anxiety, depression. Uh, do, do you find that that factors in as well, that these guys are dealing with those uh, maladies and those issues? It's a, it's a, it is a pressure cooker. And because the, it, the clock is ticking very quickly that you get old really fast as, you know, uh, as one um, personnel guy in the NFL told me, he said, you know, if there's a younger, cheaper version of you, you're gone. Um, and so um, because of that, if you do have an injury, and let's say you're you're you were one of those number one draft picks. Uh, you were the greatest kid to ever play in your little league. You were the greatest kid to ever play in your high school. And now all of a sudden you get there and, and everybody was the greatest kid who played in their high school who's on that roster. And now all of a sudden you get an injury and you get shut down for the year. That's a year you're never getting back that everybody is now flying past you. And there's another crop of young kids who are the best kid in their high school and the best kid in their league that are that are nipping at your tail. And so that's a lot of pressure um, that and and also knowing that that your your window, if you do magically make it up into the uh, into the show, you know, your magical window, do you get. Uh, the at bat that day. If you get the at bat that day, what are the circumstances around that? If you do get the 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 call from the the bullpen and you get in, what are the circumstances? And are you given the ability to even showcase your talent? Um, and are you having a good day that day? Um, there's so many. The, you know, your margin of error is so small, and the clock is ticking so fast that there's an immense amount of pressure. That's why, you know, I never begrudge anybody for making their money. Right. Absolutely. No, I, I, I think I think that's that's an important distinction as well. We've, we've talked a lot about, you know, your observations working with professional athletes. But sad to say, the majority of people listening to this podcast have long given up on their dreams to play professional football or basketball. And they're more interested in figuring out, you know, how to slim down and get toned for the summer season if if we have a summer season. So. Let me give you uh, two hypothetical clients, and you can kind of walk me through how you would sculpt their fitness regimen. Um, the first client, in honor of, of your Yankees, his name is Aaron. And Aaron is feeling a little self-conscious about his weight, and he's, he's looking to shed maybe 15 to 20 pounds over the next couple of months, Eric, before the summer begins. So leaving aside the question of diet, you know, how would you go about constructing Aaron's fitness plan? Okay. So the first thing I need to find out is, uh, well, what are you doing now? Right. Cause the, the whole way, the whole reason exercise works is it's this, the, it's this law of adaptation. Um, and that if you were to go pick up something heavy and you do that on a regular basis, your body starts recognizing, well, I don't know what you, 
you're doing here, but if you keep doing that, I need to get stronger. I probably need to add a little more muscle. I'm going to get a little bit more uh, drive from the nervous system to activate that muscle. And so I'm going to adapt accordingly. And so our whole uh, physiology is built on um, trying to create this homeostasis. If it were cold in the room, you'd shiver to warm up. If it was hot, you'd sweat to cool down. And so uh, if you were doing zero set, sets of uh, squats yesterday, you don't need to do five today. One is 100% you know, boost. So you need to kind of know where you're at. From there, what I'm gonna do is kind of create that checklist of patterns and say, okay, somewhere in the course of this workout, it doesn't have to be all within uh, the same day. It could be spread out over uh, a couple different routines, but somewhere in that workout, I wanna make sure that you're pushing, you're pulling, you're twisting, you're bending, you're squatting, you're lunging, um, and you're, you're uh, getting all those patterns incorporated in so we're actually building strength that you can use. Uh, I, I have an expression that if you work out all day and you still can't help, help me move a couch, your workout sucks. Um, so uh, then I'm going to go through those movements. And then it's a matter of just scaling those, artfully scaling those movements to where you're two things. You need to be challenged because if you're not challenged, there's no reason for your body to change. But you also need to be successful. So let's say if I am not a runner and I'm going to go out and start running tomorrow and um, I run to the end of the driveway, I get to the mailbox and I'm out of breath. Okay, I turn around, walk back up, and I'm going to start back up tomorrow. And now I'm going to run down to the end of the neighbor's yard. And then the next day I run down to the end of the block. And the next day I'm running a block and a half. And I keep adding a little bit each day until eventually I can run around the whole neighborhood. Um, that's progressive um, overload, which is what we want, where you're being challenged, but you're being successful. Um, if I were to just do what most people do and say, I'm going to start running and I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to run the whole neighborhood. And then the next week you're on Advil with achy knees and a back and you can't move and can't walk up and down the stairs. Well, you were very challenged, but you weren't very successful. Um, so I need to find that sweet spot where you're just challenged enough that it's going to create change, but you're not, uh, but you're still successful in that it's not going to impede on your function and it's not going to take away from our ability to go back and do it again the next day with a little bit more, just a little bit more challenge. Okay, so, so we're talking about um, this progressive movement. Is, is that applicable to, you know, this hypothetical client, Aaron is looking to shed 15 to 20 pounds. And, you know, let's say we also have Garrett um, and Garrett, instead of, you know, losing weight, wants to put on 10 pounds of muscle. I mean, how would you draw the distinction there, Eric, where, you know, you're constructing Aaron's fitness plan, you know, he's, he's got to shed a little bit and Garrett is looking, you know, maybe he's a police officer or, you know, he's a weekend warrior. He wants to get shredded for tough mutter. Um, I mean, both of them, you know, generally speaking, the, the, the progressive movements and the challenges might, might apply, but I mean, what's, what's the distinction there when, when you're creating each of their workout plans? So you're saying if one wants to just get leaner and the other one wants to add muscle? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so the approach is really not all that much different. I'm going to try to add muscle as much as possible for both people. And in 20 years, I've had very few people come to me and say, oh, no, I put on too much muscle. We need to stop. Okay, <laughs> those, that, those cases are rare. Um, so... Uh, you know, th we're going to try to put it, make a concern for, for, for getting as, as, as strong and muscular as possible and also understand that gaining muscle is a completely inefficient, unnatural behavior. Um, in, in, if we were around, 
you know, 5,000 years ago and you had a bunch of extra muscle, you'd be dead. Okay. Um, because that extra muscle burns extra calories. It's more weight to tote around. And if we don't know when our next meal is coming, then you're just, you're literally dead weight. So it's an unnatural process for our body to add muscle to it. And so because of that, you have to do some unnatural things. And one of the big differences is overfeeding it, um, that you need to have a, a caloric surplus, not thousands of calories, but a couple hundred calories surplus every day. Um, that you have something to even fuel that additional tissue. Um, and then your training may change slightly um, when we get down into the real specifics of training. But for the beginner person, it, it's not going to make a huge amount of difference. It's only when you get much more advanced that you start applying some more unique and distinct principles. Well, what about some of the myths that you hear sort of around the gym? One of them is is that you should bulk up in the winter. So you should eat a lot in the winter and, and you know, uh, focus on lifting and adding muscle in the winter. And then in the spring, then you can shed the fat and hopefully the muscle remains. That's sort of a reductionist frame of it. But is there any logic to that commonly perpetuated myth, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard before? Um, if there is a, 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 um, a small thread of, of scientific truth there, um, that is basically the thin thread that most people hang on to use it as an excuse just to eat a bunch of crap over the winter um, and, and get fat, which makes it that much harder. Uh, and every year after year, it gets even harder and harder exponentially to try to lose that going into it. Um, it what you would notice is that um, that's less and less of a common trend. That's kind of an old school bodybuilding thing that you don't see as much anymore. You're not going to stay in that super lean state, but, it, but when I'm talking super lean, most people aren't considering super lean. I'm talking when you're down in that, that 5% range, five to for some people under 10%, uh, body fat, you know, that's, that's not really sustainable naturally, unless you're a genetic freak. Um, so that would be counterproductive, but for the average gym goer, um, adding that extra weight is not going to do anything except make it that much harder in the spring to, to get it back off. Yeah. It's, it's funny, you know, cause there's all those forums out there. I'm sure you're very familiar with like bodybuilding.com. Um, <laughs> and they talk about how, uh, how it's impossible to add muscle and lose fat at the same time. And you have to essentially as, as I'm alluding to, they say that you have to add all the muscle and fat simultaneously, and then, you know, you cut out fat and, and cut out a little bit of muscle. So, um, sort of what you're saying is that the science does not back that up and people are just looking for an excuse to indulge in the winter and really put in the hard work and the sweat in the springtime. Well, the science backs it up a little bit. You need to, 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 to gain muscle, you need a caloric surplus and to, to lose fat, you need a caloric deficit. Um, so it, it's easier if you're focusing on one versus trying to do both. It certainly is easier. It's not that it can't be done, um, um, but you're, you would get more of an effect if you focus on one or the other. But my point is that most people take that thin shred and then run on it as an excuse to eat a bunch of crap. And what they're not doing is they're not eating that couple hundred calorie surplus. They're just getting fat. Um, and when they go and they, they lean out, they're not getting that, that little bit of caloric deficit that they're going to get a slow sustained loss of body fat. They're starving themselves and they end up giving away 
25 to 50 percent, if not more, of the muscle that they gained over the, any of muscle if they really did gain any muscle over the winter. Yeah, it, it is funny, though. I mean, you mentioned that you had a, a, a you know career a long time ago as a bodybuilder. Just talking to friends, you know, and, and, you know, we watch like bodybuilding competitions. It's very rare to see someone who can lift significant um, weight who, you know, is under, you know, 250, uh, 300 pounds, because it seems like when you talk about the caloric surplus, people are not just adding muscle. They're not discriminating they're putting on a lot of fat also so it seems like people who are, are naturally very skinny very lean have a smaller frame it's tougher for them to actually uh you know get bigger compared to guys who are you know who are fat who are, who are heavier well that's more of a quasi-modern bodybuilding thing if you look at the 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 when bodybuilding really came to its into its own and you look at those bodybuilders i mean franco colombo was one of my idols at a, as a bodybuilder and he was one of the strong he claimed he was one of the strongest men he, that ever lived pound for pound and the old bodybuilding shows they actually would have a powerlifting meet before the stage show and so you couldn't just be pretty you had to be strong and if you watch Pumping Iron, um, you know, there there's some strong individuals uh, that are in there that are doing uh, squats and deadlifts and, and, and some some good fundamental movements in there. And only once we got into the, the 80s and 90s did we really see the the you know, where we got into the super specialization. And, and a lot of that kind of correlated with the ramp up of of. Uh, the, the the improvements in chemistry that they were able to take uh, through through drugs. Oh yeah, I, I am I am I have no doubt that that's a factor as as well. I, I also want to ask you, Eric, because you're talking about you know caloric surpluses and what people can do to ensure that they're putting on muscle and and maximizing their performance here. Do you think as as a performance coach? People need supplements, whether that be something like creatine or just something like whey protein in order to, um, you know, be toned or, or be more physically fit. Is it possible for someone to be at their maximum, um, you know, at their, the best in the best shape of their life without any supplements whatsoever? Or do you advise that people, you know, just add a little protein, maybe, you know, something like that to their diet by taking taking some protein powder? Well, a couple things. Number one is uh, supplements are just that, um, just by by the uh, semantics of it. They're a supplement to a good diet. They don't replace a bad one. Um, so if you're so if the athletes, especially the high school and college kids that I work with, and even some of the pros, is I make them journal their food uh, for a couple weeks, and I say you have to earn your way to supplements. Until you have a diet that's worthy of adding a supplement, you're just literally peeing your money away if you're going to go buy supplements now. So you have to have the diet locked in first. Um, and then once you have that, the second thing is when you mentioned protein shakes, to me, aren't necessarily a supplement. It's just a dehydrated food. So it's a, it's a convenience food. Um, so if you're in a situation where time or, uh, or uh, um, the ability to get to food is an issue. So if I'm a, a high school athlete and I, I go to school all day and, and I have to go to practice at, at 3.30, and I don't have the ability to get a, my last, my lunch was at 10:30 AM. I need to get some calories in so I can have a shaker container with a scoop of protein in it and a, and a banana or an apple. Um, so it's convenient. So if I'm rushing out the door, cause I have to be at work at a super early age, 
that's where you know I I can throw in a scoop of protein and it's a quick easy food. That's not that's not necessarily a supplement in my mind. Yeah, yeah. And the other the last thing is is supplements really show that they make about a five to ten percent difference. So if you're at the point where five to ten percent is going to make a difference in your appearance or performance, then yeah. And creatine is one of the first places I start. There's never been a, a supplement with better research behind it um, in terms of sports supplements than creatine. It has huge benefits, and now they're even finding benefits of uh, of brain health with with uh, creatine. So it's not just a, a muscle head thing anymore. Um, so there's huge benefits to, to creatine. Um, but is it going to make a difference? Is your other 90 to 95 percent lined up first, or are we just uh, adding a, a great supplement onto a lousy diet? I, I my law school there's there's a police officer his name is Hawkins and this guy looks like if you've ever seen Brooklyn Nine Nine or I mean if you're a football fan he looks like Terry Crews this guy cannot put on a t-shirt without you know his biceps and triceps just bursting through and he tells me Eric I ask him what's the secret you know I see him in the gym he says he he has six scoops of whey protein every single day and that's the only supplement that he takes this guy's a former bodybuilder so it seems like kind of to your point about it being a meal replacement rather than a supplement, that's how he's getting most of his protein. And Hey, if it works for Hawkins, it, you know, it might work for, for the listeners. Yeah. I, you know, because Hawkins is, is carrying around that kind of size, he might be able to get away with the six scoops, but at the end of the day, all those six scoops have some calories. So if you're the, um, 155 pound beginner, you certainly don't need six scoops. So, you know, you can start with one scoop because that scoop of protein is probably going to be a better quality protein um, than whatever food stuff you're eating. And it certainly be better than that bagel you're going to have this morning. Uh, absolutely. So usually at the end of the episodes here, Eric, I like to reiterate the most important points that we touched on to really hammer home what people should take away from our conversation. So if there's one single thing that you want the folks listening to take away from this episode, maybe particularly about staying fit during COVID-19, what would that be? Uh, there's a big difference between having a system and a program and then just doing a workout. Not that workouts are bad, and, and it, if you want to take a Zumba class or, or, or uh, a spin class or you want to go uh, and go for a community run, um, by, by all means, that's great. The more you can get out and kind of have fun and associate that with movement, the better. But um, the that whole uh, adaptation principle is is in science called the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demand. So if I go out and run a bunch of distance, it'll get me good at running distance. It won't necessarily get me better at my deadlift. And if I deadlift a bunch, it won't get me better at running distance. So just moving for the sake of moving will be great as a start. Um, but at some point, if you're going to get over that hump and get through that dip, you need to have something that's specific for you. Uh, that would be, you know, one. If I could throw in a, a, a two and three, the two would be uh, before you go and move often and worry about how many burpees or how many miles, I would say make sure you move well first uh, or there's going to be a point where your body's just going to break down. Um, the, the ability to have resiliency that you can keep coming back and doing it again and getting better every time. Uh, is is an attribute of moving well before you move often. And then the third piece is that 
Um, in order for you to keep getting gains, you need to be challenged, but you need to be successful. Um, you need to be challenged enough where it's going to be enough that your body says, okay, if you're going to keep doing this, we're, we're going to have to make some changes here, but it has to be successful in that you don't just need to obliterate yourself um, with the workout of the day, and then you can't walk for a week because that was completely counterproductive. Uh, training is cumulative. It happens over time, um, and no one workout, no one a week or, or, or month is going to make the difference. It's the accumulation of those habits and, and um, things and that, that, that overload that's going to make the ultimate you know, long-term change. And you heard the man. If you can't help him move his couch, you're probably not as strong as you think you are. If you can't help me move a couch and you work out all the time, your workout sucks. Um, <laughs> well, listen, this has been a really insightful conversation. I'm sure my listeners want to know where they can go to learn more about you and your work, Eric. Uh, sure. I mean, the easiest place is just go to my website. It's Eric Degatti, uh, E-R-I-C-D-A-G-A-T-I.com. Um, because I go out and teach so much, uh, I put something right on the front page called Ask Eric. If you have any questions related to training, you could just ask, shoot them there and I'll get back to you with an email. Uh, and then on there, you can also find all my social outlets as well as my blog um, where I'm posting stuff on a pretty regular basis about um, training and performance and uh, stories of, uh, of interactions that I have with the athletes as well as non-athletes. Well, thanks so much again for joining me, Eric. And I think uh, you've inspired me. I might, might have to watch Pumping Iron tonight. It's, it's a classic. If you, if you forget any of the lines, I know them all. That's amazing. Thanks, Eric. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning into my conversation with Eric Degatti. I definitely learned a lot. And I'll probably, you know, integrate some of Eric's tips into my quarantine workout regimen. Maybe do some one-legged pistol squats, some one-arm push-ups if I can manage and potentially some yoga also. That sounds, I think, you know, I think that has tremendous uh, potential. Um, So again, you know, important takeaway, what I took most away from the conversation with Eric is, you know, integrate movement into your everyday life. It's not about what the machine says or, you know, how many calories your smartwatch says that you're burning. It's just about getting up and doing something. And I think, as Eric alluded to at the beginning of the episode, that's sort of the silver lining, the the bright side of all of this, um, you know, of the pandemic. As he said, you never see, you've never seen so many people walking um, outside in the neighborhood. So that, you know, could be could could end up being a positive turning point for the human race, at least as far as physical movement is concerned. Next week, I am going to be joined by a Food Network chef, and we're going to talk all about cooking. Um, We'll be exploring issues including the must-have kitchen utensils for any aspiring chef and what ingredients a TV chef uses the most in his dishes, what goes on on televised food competitions when the cameras aren't rolling, and finally, the chef's tips for dining out and why contrary to Anthony Bourdain's opinion, it is okay to order seafood on Mondays. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode with performance coach Eric Degatti on staying fit during COVID-19. Feel free to uh, follow me on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore, search for Nervous Habits Podcast on YouTube, and write in uh, to the pod at NervousHabitsPodcast at gmail.com, NervousHabitsPodcast at gmail.com. How are you staying fit during COVID-19? Do you have any comments or questions regarding the episode and the advice from, uh, from Eric? And you have an Uncle Larry who is 75 years old and can bench more than you can, which 
quite frankly, might be a little bit embarrassing. Uh, write me and let me know at nervousheadspodcast at gmail.com. Looking forward to continuing these these really riveting interviews with, with uh, guests, experts. I hope you're enjoying them as much as I can. Looking forward to next week um, with the Food Network chef. Most importantly, make sure you're moving around every single day. Stay fit and stay nervous. Take care, guys.